The Tom Woods Show, episode 1236. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you are not on my legendary email list, you are missing out on all sorts of inner circle goodness. Hop on that list and get a free ebook at the same time over at tomsfreebooks.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. I'm broadcasting to you here from New York City. I'm in town for a couple of quick things and I I enjoy getting up here. I like to bring my kids with me whenever possible. I'll be at the Soho Forum this Thursday for the gun control debate. That's Thursday, September 13th, 2018. So if you'd uh, like to say hello, I'll be over there. And remember at any of the Soho Forum events, you get a free drink from the bar by simply saying the name Tom Woods to Gene Epstein. So get all the details about all the upcoming events at the Soho Forum at thesohoforum.org. Now, by the way, I don't know, that that deal probably isn't valid for the October event because there are going to be so many people there. It just might be logistically difficult. But any month other than that one, the thing ought to work. So I've got a bunch of things. I'm going to be seeing Tom Woods Show episode number three guest, Ian Anderson, here in New York City. It's the Jethro Tull 50th anniversary tour, and I'll be sitting in the fifth row over there. It's going to be great. So anyway, a bunch of fun things. I'm doing a, a an escape room with a bunch of supporting listeners here. We have about a dozen of us. That's as many as the room will allow, so we'll have some fun. Anyway, let's get to what we're doing today. Today, I'm sharing with you something I cannot believe I have not shared before. This is kind of a summary of so many of the arguments I've made over the years, And it's a talk I gave at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, in 2011. So it's an oldie but a goodie. And the idea here is that these are the years, 2009, 10, and 11, that the Ron Paul people really, really dominated CPAC. And these people at CPAC were just so backwards because of all possible choices they could make in 2011 – They chose to honor, of all people on this earth, Donald Rumsfeld with a special award as the Defender of the Constitution. So now you'll understand a couple of the references I make in the talk to Donald Rumsfeld's presence at the event. I don't believe he was in attendance at my talk, but I make reference to him, and now you'll understand what that's all about. And the straw poll that I talk about, I didn't take this early banter out because I think it's fun to reminisce and remember these things. The straw poll I'm talking about, of course, is a straw poll that's taken at CPAC every year, or I guess probably just the year uh, of the primaries, about which Republican candidate would you like to see nominated. And so I was urging people, get out there and vote for Ron Paul. What's wrong with you people? So anyway, it's I'm really pleased with this talk. And uh, it's one of these things where I'm just I'm just pounding away at as many pieces of state propaganda as I can possibly think of. So I hope you enjoy. So it gives me great pleasure and great honor, a man who's done more to advance the cause of liberty than pretty much anybody I could possibly imagine. Ladies and gentlemen, New York Times bestselling author and a hell of a guy, Tom Woods. before I go on. Not necessary. I'm drunk on love, baby. Well, thank you very much. It's just as well, I have the alcohol tolerance level of a 90-year-old woman, so you never know what what I wind up saying. Well, again, thank you very much. Thanks to Jack Hunter. You really should check him out. He's a, he's a great guy. He was on my list on my blog. I have a website, tomwoods.com, and recently I posted there five people who deserve to be better known. Jack was on that list. I, I couldn't agree with myself. housekeeping things before we get into the uh, unapproved opinions here that are going to be expressed. So if you have delicate ears and you don't want to hear an opinion that doesn't fall in between the officially allowed range of Mitch McConnell to Hillary Clinton, now is the time to leave the room. Okay? You're going to be hearing some things today that are not approved by the New York Times, the Washington Post, MSNBC, and so on and on. And I mean, if this is, if you're too delicate for this, now is the time to get out. But what I, I want to say first is 
There's a straw poll going on at this event. your vote. That is a deeply personal decision all of us must make. The one thing I am trying to influence, though, would be those people who say, oh, I, I don't agree with voting. I don't support voting. Voting is stupid. You know, you can have that view if you don't want to vote in elections, whatever, but this is a non-governmental, private organization poll, and you are voting in it. Okay? Get out there and vote. It closes uh, early-ish, mid-morning tomorrow, so that I think your best bet is just vote now. Get your little hole punched in here, okay? You can show that, that you've done it. I'm gonna be doing a book signing at 4.30 for this new book that I have called Rollback, along with a few other titles. I should warn you that my book signing is being held at the same time that Donald Rumsfeld's book signing is being held. So I mean, I'll understand if you can't tear yourselves away defender of the Constitution. Well, I think we all know who the real defender of the Constitution is. Yes, I am going to get to, I am going to get to my remarks at some point, but this is actually kind of a lot of fun. But opening remarks, and then finally, 8 p.m., make sure you're in the Thurgood Marshall Ballroom, I believe is where it is, where we're having an event tonight where it's going to be Jack, and, and I will be there as well. We're gonna, I'm going to be like Johnny Carson, he'll be Ed McMahon. Some of you are too young to even know who these people are. So ask someone, okay? And we're going to be interviewing Ron and Rand Paul for all to see. so much to tell you guys today that I actually don't have time to be funny. Like, I know some people say, oh, you got to come hear this guy. Hey, this guy's kind of, he's a real riot. And then they're going to walk out today and say, well, the talk was okay. I didn't hear any jokes. I just don't have time for the jokes. The jokes will be later. The jokes will be after the reception when, you know, we've had the one or two drinks. And man, oh, those are some totally different jokes. <laughs> but just so much I want to talk about. Because basically what I'm doing, what I've done with this new book that just came out a few days ago, is basically this. Two things. First, to start talking about something I think a lot of us already realize, namely the impossible, and I mean that literally impossible fiscal condition of the U.S. government. I mean, it can't be fixed. And I'll say a little bit more about that and elaborate on that with some statistics in a little while. But the bottom line is that the federal government has made promises that it can't possibly keep. It is going to have to renege on those promises one way or another. We cannot pretend it's all sunshine and lollipops and anybody who wants to cut back is some kind of a, an ogre who hates sick and poor people. I mean, really, you know, that's not even worthy of a fourth grader. We have to be adults here and deal with the, the, the cards we've been dealt. But I'm using this impossible fiscal situation as a jumping off point to say, you know, as long as we're facing massive cuts of one type or another that have to come, it's mathematically impossible. The numbers don't add up. Well, they, I suppose they do add up to default. It's mathematically impossible for us to avoid cuts. Well, let's go back then and reevaluate all these claims that we got about government when we were in the sixth grade, by which government has more or less justified its ongoing growth, and Americans have acquiesced in it. Because I think even the best of us, in our heart of hearts, still can't quite emancipate ourselves from the idea that really government ultimately at root has our best interests at heart. It's, it's, it's wonderful self-serving, uh, well, there we go, that was a Freudian slip, wasn't it? It's wonderful selfless public servants just looking out for the common good, and without them, well, we'd have no art, we'd have no science if it weren't for government science funding. See, I'm gonna take on some of the hard cases. We'd all be ignoramuses if it weren't for the Federal Department of Education. We'd probably, our, our limbs would be blown off by exploding consumer products. We'd all be working for a dollar a day in a mine somewhere. I mean, whatever. Right? I mean, every one of us in this room got that in school. Like, we all got that. And I understand, I mean, that is superficially plausible. I, I'm not saying people who believe this are, are idiots. I mean, I would be shocked if people believed anything different. This is what you're told 24 hours a day your whole, your whole lives. But what I'm trying to do is to stick a dagger through this. 
Because if I were running a racket like this, if I were running a racket like the U.S. government, that is exactly what I would want all you suckers to believe. That without my wise and paternal custodianship, you know, you'd all be a bunch of helpless and pathetic boobs. Oh man, I would so screw you guys too. But let's think though, let's imagine that the federal government is not the institution you read about in sixth grade civics. Let's suppose it said that our sixth grade textbook was wrong, ooh, and that the casual assumptions on which we have based so many of our political decisions have been faulty. Let's suppose the federal government has actually been an enemy of the people's welfare, and that the progress we've seen in our living standards has occurred quite in spite of it. It pits individuals, firms, industries, regions, races, and age groups against each other in a zero-sum game of mutual plunder. It takes credit for improvements in material conditions that we owe to the private sector while refusing to accept responsibility for the countless failures and social ills to which its own programs have given rise. And rather than bringing about the so-called public good, it governs us through a series of fiefdoms seeking bigger budgets and more power. And despite the veneer of public interest rhetoric by which it camouflages its real nature, it is a mere parasite on productive activity and a net minus in the story of human welfare. Let's suppose that description is correct. Well, then this makes the coming fiscal collapse an opportunity to be embraced, not a calamity to be deplored. So let's talk about that collapse a little bit. Because I know a lot of people think, well, the debt is very high indeed, but it's been high for a long time, and we've heard a lot of griping about it, but nothing seems to have occurred as a result. We seem to be struggling along all right, so maybe this is just a lot of scaremongering. Okay, I understand that. But when I say there's a coming fiscal collapse, I'm not engaged in any kind of wild extrapolation or crazy speculation. What I'm describing here is going to occur. And it's going to occur partly because we're seeing the aging of our population. And this can be measured. We know the people who are living longer, and by the way, that's good. We should be happy that we're living longer. But these people who are going to be living longer and longer and longer, including all of us in this room, we've already been born. So therefore, we can trace out our lifespans and make estimates on that basis that there will be such and such number of people in retirement in this particular year. And so we've got an aging population. This demographic crisis is hitting the whole developed world. China's gonna go through it. Japan is already going through it. Western Europe is being hit by it very badly as well. Everybody's facing it. And when Pete Peterson, who focuses on these issues, went to Western Europe and talked to a lot of finance ministers, what did they say? They all admitted it. Yeah, of course we're all, of course we can't maintain the welfare state programs that we've accepted. Of course we all know that. We know that, but the idea was that I, the finance minister, will long since have been retired by the time this problem really hits. Now, couldn't we just tax our way out of this, right? We'll just raise taxes. That's the view. We can, you can always raise taxes. You can always find some more suckers to loot and loot them more and more. But here's a problem with that. I mean, apart from the moral problem, you know, you shouldn't probably just grab other people's stuff. I mean, it's just when you learn that when you were like three, you shouldn't do that. But even if we set aside the moral problem, uh, Jeff Hummels, an economics professor on the West Coast, points out a very interesting statistic that ever since the Korean War, regardless of what the actual tax rates have been, the federal government has been able to bring in, in tax receipts, only somewhere around 20% of GDP, regardless of the rate. I mean, that's quite an astonishing thing. That, you, know, you can fluctuate it all you like, but basically the, the take is roughly the same. There is an upper bound beyond which further tax increases will have little to no effect. Uh, we are going to see foreign demand for U.S. debt uh, dry up for a variety of reasons. I mean, part of it is precisely the demographic crisis that a lot of these other countries are going to be facing. And so this makes the national debt seem like nothing because the demographic crisis that we're going to be facing deals with the entitlement programs and those, we've got a shortfall there of on the order of $111 trillion. Now you can't, you just can't tax or borrow or print your way out of that. I mean, that, one way or another, decisions are going to have to be made. And so $14 trillion in the national debt, now it seems like peanuts. I mean, if anything, I hope you feel better now. The national debt really isn't so bad after all. 
okay? By 2020, even assuming the rosiest scenario that we've got a robust recovery from the current malaise and interest rates stay at the super low levels they are now, the U.S. government is going to be owing nearly a trillion dollars in interest alone every year starting in 2020. And that's the best scenario. So the best scenario is the federal government is just going to open up a window, throw a trillion dollars out. It's very different from what they normally do, as you can see, a totally different situation. <laughs> And then the states, okay, well, we have some states that are doing okay. I think Texas is doing reasonably well. But plenty of states are on the verge of bankruptcy. We've got seven states whose pension funds are going to be bust by 2020, another 13 by 2025. And they last even that long, only assuming that they're making an 8% return per year. Which I think there's a teensy-weensy chance that that might not happen. Now, I, I didn't realize that one of my old college friends uh, from my Harvard days, Harry Wilson, ran for com New York com Comptroller this year, and he almost won, a total outsider, he almost won. And I found out about him because I, I was reading about, uh, reading a New York Times article where he was quoted, because at the time, this was last year, the governor was considering a proposal to bail out the pension fund by borrowing from the pension fund. <laughs> I, and people are saying, what? How could this be? Well, I'm afraid it is. That is an indication that the thing is over. The game is up. And of course, the, the poster child for all this is Detroit. Detroit is a city where it's the, the very model of spending and regulation and welfare and everything. And all these programs that we've been ogres for not supporting. Why? You must hate the human race. You must be a big hater. Blah, 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 blah. The typical Orwellian terms they throw out at you. But when you look at what actually happened in Detroit, if I wanted to wreck a city, I would do precisely these things. If I wanted to hurt people, I would do precisely these things. You look at what happened to it, about a quarter of the schools are closing, the money is gone, half the people have left, and what happened to the housing market? Well, in 2003, the median home price was $98,000. By 2009, it was down to about 14000 You think, oh, wow, that really hit rock bottom. No, in 2010, it hit 7000 <laughs> And this, this is a microcosm for what may well be coming. And given the scale of what happened to Detroit, the likes of which we have not seen in American urban history, given that scale, there was, relatively speaking, no coverage of this. Absolute silence. <coughs> and of course, the young generation. Good luck to, to all of us, right? I mean, it knows how I included myself. <laughs> but I mean, really. I mean, if you're in your teens or 20s or 30s, basically the current system is, is rigged so that you have to just work and work and work till you drop dead on behalf of a system that's going to collapse anyway. Well, that's just great. Well, I'm not going to go into more statistics about that, partly because my publisher happily has put up a free chapter of the book online, and it's a chapter where I lay out, okay, here is what we're facing. And it's all facts that no one disputes. I'm not contriving a crisis. These are all facts that no one disputes. So if you'd like to read that free chapter, it's at rollbackbook.com or through my website, tomwoods.com. Instead, I want to move on to the second and more fun part of the presentation, which is the part when we re-examine and reevaluate all these claims we got in sixth grade. Wherever would we be without Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell and their paternal custodianship of us all, their hearts aflame with a desire for justice for us? Like, where would we all be, right? So first of all, I mean, let's think about the sort of things that we all want. I remember that when I graduated high school, I was under the impression that if it, if, honestly, if it hadn't been for these icons before whom we waved incense in the classroom every day, these great men whom we saw, all these great presidents, if it hadn't been for them, we'd all be, you know, probably dead or in a pit somewhere, and, you know. But yet, the facts are exactly the opposite. Look at how, po what's happened to poverty around the world. Poverty's the, the great, the great sticking point. Well, you know, capitalism is incompatible with, uh, high standard of living for everybody. Well, that's exactly the opposite is the truth. Absolute poverty, what economists call absolute poverty, afflicted 85% of the world's population in 1820. That was down to 50% by 1950, without any particularly substantial uh, government programs, down to 33% by the early 1980s, by 2001 down to about 18%. And in fact, from 1981 to 2001, not only the percentage, but also the absolute number of people in poverty fell. That had never happened in any 20-year period in history. In the developing countries, we've seen substantial rises in life expectancy and caloric intake. 
In the U.S., we look at the U.S. poverty levels, and here we're not talking about the more desperate, absolute poverty, but what we recognize as American-style American poverty. Um, that figure declined over the course of the 20th century from roughly 95% to roughly the 12 to 14% we have now. The bottom quintile saw their real incomes increase at 1,900%, which was much more than any other income group saw. And they were, able, they were able to acquire amenities that would have been prohibitive luxuries to even the richest, to even kings and queens in previous eras. Well, this is not just a funny coincidence that economies around the world begin to liberalize, there's more respect for, for law and private property and free exchange, and then at the same time poverty falls. One of the purposes of rollback is indeed to show that there is a connection. This isn't just fortuitous or just happened to occur and we don't know why it did. We do indeed know why it did. It's precisely because of the market economy, for reasons I explain in here. But the market never gets the credit for this. It gets blamed. It gets blamed for things, but it doesn't get the credit for things that it actually accomplishes. Let's look at the things it gets blamed for. And you notice that a lot of these things are things that the government did. But somehow they're the fault of the free market. Now, one of the, this one's a little bit obscure. Some of you guys might be a little too young to remember this. In the late 1990s, we were told, man, that stupid free market that all you selfish people are trying to force on us, well, it has screwed us again thanks to, to energy deregulation in California. Look, we got rolling blackouts thanks to your free markets. Well, we need our wise overlords back in charge, and next time you guys shouldn't get so uppity. They know how to provide electricity to you. Okay, look at what actually happened. We did have the rolling blackouts, but what deregulation are they talking about? Okay, wholesale prices of electricity, which the state's electric power distributors pay, those could fluctuate. But retail prices for electricity were fixed. And this is at a time when demand is surging for electricity in California because the population was increasing considerably and the flourishing computer industry has voracious power demands. And so here's the situation. And also, no additional power plants were allowed to be opened and some were forced to close. And this is the free market's fault, you see. It's the free market's fault that demand surges, prices aren't allowed to adjust to reflect this new situation, and this just goes to show we need more government control. I mean, really, I mean, what kind of a shill for the regime would you have to be to repeat a story like this? Like, there, it's not even like there are two sides to the story and I'm just giving you one. This is the story. All right, we're... Let's consider, I'm going to do this one quickly. It's, it's, you might think, oh, this is kind of technical. Why is he going through this? Because it has to be gone through. Because if I hear this one more time, I'm going to commit an atrocity, and I really don't want that to happen. I've gone through my life a very, very decent and good and, and peaceful person up to this point. And again, some of you guys are too young for this. And isn't this great, by the way, that this room is so filled with young people? Not that older people are bad. I mean, I'm, I'll be joining you there. You know, we're on the verge here. But, but great. And it's so wonderful because a lot of these conferences, it's, you know, it's very, it's like pulling teeth to get people to come. And great to see all you, you, you folks. But in the 1980s, we had these savings and loan problem. The savings and loans were institutions the government established to help people, to help people get affordable housing. Yes, indeed, the affordable housing situation. Well, here's, here's the business model of the SNL. They could charge 6% on 30-year mortgages. You take a 30-year mortgage, you pay 6% on it, uh, and that's, that's the deal, 6%. And then depositors could get 3%. And today, 3% sounds awesome. Wow, 3% for a deposit. But in the 1980s, that was kind of looking pretty bad. You've got double-digit inflation. Your lousy 3% return isn't, isn't really so great. And so it was... In making up the difference there, that's how they made profits. But the problem was that money market mutual funds started to pop up. People would get much higher return than just 3%. People started pulling their money out of the SNLs and droves. So the SNLs basically said, well, if we're going to not just collapse now, we need to have permission to offer depositors a higher return. And we need to have permission to invest in something other than 30-year mortgages at 6% in an age of double-digit inflation. I mean, obviously, this can't work. This government-established business model can't possibly work. So the consensus began to develop that if we want to save these things, we've got to change the rules. Now, maybe they shouldn't have been saved. Maybe it was a bad idea. We'll never know because the free market was never able to test them. But the point is that if you wanted to save them, you would have to change the rules. And that's what so-called deregulation of the SNLs amounted to. 
that they can offer a higher return and they can make different types of investments. Now you say, but that's terrible, they might take on more risk. Okay, well, it's either that or they fail. What's your, what's your choice? And I, I, I have a choice of my own, but the point is that when the government modifies the government-established rules of a government-established institution whose deposits continue to be insured by the government, how is that the free market's fault? Crisis. Well, I talked about that in uh, my book Meltdown, which was two years ago, and what the causes of that were. And I explained that you know this wasn't again this wasn't a matter of the government and the central bank were just innocent bystanders just staying there. And suddenly a crisis occurred, which is how the, the government version of events always goes. It's always just standing there searching for ways to help us, and then a tsunami of unexpected things occur. Okay, well I just you know come on now again we're we're not in fourth grade, and so I went through and talked about. Uh, the Federal Reserve System and how it uh, manipulates interest rates and the interest rates are supposed to, as F.A. Hayek said, supposed to serve as a break. They're supposed to serve as a break on our ambitions to tell us not to go totally crazy in a bubble and, and, and mania and so on. That there are certain types of investments that we should just quit putting our money into. But unfortunately, instead of getting any red lights, all the lights were green in the economy, thanks to Alan Alan Greenspan, interestingly enough. Alan Greenspan, throughout the 2000s, let's just keep the rates low. And instead of any adjustment, they get more and more green lights. People keep on doing it. And at that time, imagine trying to tell somebody in 2004 that it's not a sustainable way to live, to have no job, but to have five investment properties that you're purchasing with, on an interest-only basis. And you just expect that by sitting there, you're going to get rich. You get rich by just sitting that's the new thing. We don't even have to work or produce things. You just buy these things and you sit. And if you were to say to somebody, you know, someday this is going to look like a 1950s haircut with the brill cream. You're going to be so embarrassed by this. <laughs> but you can't get them to listen. The, the, two nights ago, I was in a, in a uh, hotel in New York. And I just happened to be flipping through. And it was the Rachel Maddow show. And it was some guy, I don't know who this guy was, but I'm sure it's some guy who's not even entitled to an opinion on the subject. There's some guy who was talking about the Republican Party, and he said, the Republican Party practically caused the financial crisis because of all their bank deregulation. And I thought, oh, give me just two minutes on this show. Okay, because this I want to talk about. You think, okay, you've got a room, a packed room of people, you got the C-SPAN 2 book TV audience, and you want to talk about bank deregulation? Oh, yes, I do, precisely because I have so many people here. Because this is repeated all the time. Wow. Wow. A lot of this mentality derives from this kind of unstated assumption that just seems to form, and again, I understand why this would form somebody's philosophical makeup. We were all, this was all rammed into our heads when we were kids, but that there is no serious problem that our wise overlords couldn't have solved if they had just been given the power to crack a few more skulls. I mean, that's more or less the consensus. So let's look, okay, so let's look at these dereg deregulation. Well, let's see, we had Regulation Q, which was mostly repealed under Jimmy Carter, which had limited the amount of interest that could be could be offered on savings deposits. Well, I, I don't think that's going to lead to a meltdown three decades later, so I don't think that's it. Uh, then in 1994, restrictions on interstate branch uh, banking, so branching across the country were lifted. But from my vantage point, that actually makes the system more stable because now the banks are less subject to regional and local and state fluctuations. So why would that cause the problem? And then finally, and this I'm, I'm gonna spend a few minutes on this, Finally, now, the more clever ones will say, well, it was the repeal of Glass-Steagall that caused it. Now, most of the time, if you say to them, what was Glass-Steagall and what exactly was repealed, they will more or less say to you, hey, look over there, run away. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, the people who give you this are bluffing. All right, so what, what was this Glass-Steagall thing? All right, 1933, it was a regulation that separated investment banking from commercial banking. So commercial banks could not deal in or underwrite securities, except basically riskless ones like government or government-supported securities. And investment banks couldn't, couldn't offer deposits. And then finally, investment and commercial banks could not be controlled by the same holding company. 
That was basically what it is. So now, when we had the alleged repeal of Glass-Steagall, it was only that last one that was repealed. Just that last one. That now commercial investment banks can indeed be parented by the same holding company. But, uh, commercial banks are still forbidden to deal in securities. They can purchase them if they think they're good investments. And then they can sell them if they think they're no longer good investments or they, they need the cash. But they've always been allowed to do that. That's, that's, never been, that's never been restricted. There is no repealed regulation that would have solved this problem. Banks were always allowed to securitize loans. They were always allowed to do the various things that they, that they did. The relationship between investment and commercial banks had zero to do with the financial crisis. No commercial bank has enough assets to possibly do any serious damage to an investment bank, much less cause it to collapse entirely. And there are severe regulatory firewalls between the institutions that, again, make this entirely implausible. The financial crisis occurred because banks did a lousy job in traditional banking activities. They made bad loans. They weren't doing some newfangled thing that deregulation had made possible. There is no repealed regulation that you can point to that would have, would have uh, prevented this. In fact, if you look at the regulatory agencies that are in charge of the financial sector, in real terms, since 1980, funding for them has tripled. And moreover, Lawrence Kotlikoff at Boston University counts 115 agencies, regulatory agencies for financial services. So we're supposed to believe that things would have been a lot better if we had just had 160. That was the problem. Also, the regulators failed to identify the growing problems in the U.S. economy. Everything was fine and robust, we were told. Well, first, they were relying on the risk assessments of a small cartel of ratings agencies that were protected from competition. But secondly, they either grossly misread the condition of the housing market or they simply misled the public. I mean, Greenspan, in 2005, speaking on conditions in the housing market, described them as encouraging. In 2006, Ben Bernanke said, lending standards are sound. Lending, lending standards in 2006 are sound. This guy needs more power, clearly. <laughs> clearly. But let's suppose regulators had been able to perceive the problem. Let's say the regime bothered to listen to people who make good predictions. Would they necessarily even know what the step to take to fix it, or would they have the courage even to try? Because consider, this is Russ Roberts, an economist at GMU. He says, a regulatory crackdown would have meant taking away a punch bowl filled with more home ownership, particularly among minorities, as well as expansion and profits in the business of home building, real estate brokerage, mortgage origination, and Wall Street financial engineering. Yeah, good luck with that. That's likely to happen. And then finally, all this prudential regulation that, that has to be imposed. Whenever you have a crazy non-free market banking system like we have, it's, it's a cartel arrangement with the Fed at the center that props up all these crazy unsound banks. You need to impose all these prudential regulations to keep them from going completely crazy. And so the prudential regulations were supposed to save us, that for every $100 a bank holds in standard loans, it has to hold $10 in capital. For every $100 it holds in mortgages, it has to hold $5 in capital. But for every $100 it held in AAA-rated mortgage-backed securities, it had to hold only $2 in capital. You take a wild guess, what asset did they all flood into? And then when that one collapses, because we, because of this regulatory situation, we have encouraged a almost mandatory herd mentality. Instead of people being normally diversified across various asset classes as they would normally be, everybody's in this. So the situation is even worse. The, the systemic risk is in fact increased by, by the government itself. And finally, uh, we hear a lot about poor management at financial institutions. We've got a lot of bozos running the financial institutions. Maybe that's the case. But the current regulatory environment makes it basically impossible for professional and institutional investors to do anything about this. Uh, insurance companies, pension funds, mutual funds, and banks are not permitted to hold more than a very small stake in any particular company. Hedge funds and private equity investors are restricted by regulations that prevent them from acquiring a controlling interest in a bank holding company. But it's these types of institutions, these types of institutional investors who have a stake in the firms in question who are most likely to discipline wayward management. It's either them or regulators who get their salaries no matter what happens to them. But because of this government policy, stockholders are artificially disorganized and scattered, and they can't discipline management properly. And finally, on the matter of the financial crisis, Iceland. 
Iceland is pointed to, you crazy free market ideologues. Well, Iceland ought to put you in your place. What a free market haven that, blah, 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 blah. right? I mean, you can predict, could you at least surprise me once? Like, why do I have to be able to predict everything that's gonna come out of these people's mouths? I mean, surprise me once in a while. Well, it turns out, just take a wild guess. Like, I bet a lot of us in this room, you know nothing about Iceland. Take a wild guess of what you find in Iceland. Well, you find explicit bailout guarantees in real estate. So Fannie and Freddie had only implicit bailout guarantees. They're an explicit guarantee in Iceland. You had a completely out of control central bank, a race to the bottom in loan quality that resulted. Moral hazard all over the place. And again, that's the free markets problem. Again, we need, we need to crack more skulls to solve. Now, another thing about this institution, not enough that it, it gives no credit to us, the regular people who form the private sector. I prefer the term voluntary sector, because private sounds like we're all grasping and wicked, we don't want to share. So voluntary sector means the sector in which people do things because they want to do them, not because some gun is at their heads. that we didn't do and they did, but it also causes us to lose our imagination. Like we begin to think that, you know, there would be no arts without government art funding. Like before 1965, before 1965, there was no art in this country, apparently. And yet, the National Endowment for the Arts, what does it get in its budget every year? I mean, like 200 million at most, whereas private donors give in the billions every year. How many people even know that? Of course, no one. So that's it, well, I'm, yeah, it was a rhetorical question. <laughs> Or how about this, I'm gonna take a harder case. Science funding, okay, in here I have a little, in rollback, I have a little section called, um, ironically titled, of course, uh, called, without government science funding, everyone would be an idiot. <laughs> because again, that's the implication, right? I mean, how could you, what kind of a right-wing ideologue would you have to be? All right, well, let's look at the actual history then. Let's look at it, let's get the facts out there. In the 19th century, Britain had basically no government funding for science whatsoever and yet it vastly outperformed France and Germany. It became the world's richest and most industrialized country, home to some of the world's most illustrious scientists, and, he, and but yet France and Germany had very substantial government involvement and they lagged very far behind. Now imagine if the situation had been reversed. Imagine if it had been reversed, that France and Germany were doing well, but Britain, because its government wasn't spending enough on science, you know, everybody was still eating dirt. Imagine what we'd never hear the other. Well, that just goes to show you crazy laissez-faire ideologues. It just doesn't. But notice how when it turns out this way, total silence, not even mentioned. Japan's civil research and development is the most privatized in the world. And Japan engages in a tremendous amount of basic science, which supposedly would not be funded on the free market. But this takes place in Japan in industrial laboratories rather than in taxpayer finance universities. This is all based on this false idea of how science proceeds. It's an idea that you can trace actually back to Francis Bacon, that science proceeds as follows, that you start with basic science, which comes about in a laboratory, and then working with this basic science in a laboratory, this gives rise to discoveries. The discoveries are adopted by private industry, and then in turn put in the service of human welfare. Now that's a very plausible story. I mean, I, I believe that story for a long time, but that's not actually how science has progressed. For example, the steam engine did not, the steam engine did not emerge from people in, in lab coats. It wasn't that people were experimenting and, and, and one of them suddenly said, oh my gosh, I can't believe I got like a steam engine over here. It wasn't that at all. It was that practical men were adopting or adapting pre-existing technology to modern problems. In fact, it was the scientists who had to adapt to the technology because the steam engine was much more efficient than the existing science said it could be. So the science had to change. The Department of Defense, in quotation marks, defense, Department of Offense, uh, looked into how many of the 700 key research breakthroughs leading to the development of key weapon systems were attributable to basic science. You know how many? Two. So applied science builds overwhelmingly on applied science. Now, the, the argument, though, nevertheless, is that the market won't supply basic science um, even though we've seen that in terms of a practical application, it's not as necessary as you might think. But market won't provide it because it, it's not geared toward immediate results, and that's all the private sector cares about. And secondly, any breakthroughs that are achieved are going to immediately become widely known to competitors. So why would you want to have a breakthrough if you couldn't, um, in effect, hog all the profits and the, and the benefits from it for yourself? Well, the way we answer this is that 
when they try to claim that knowledge that comes from basic science is free, and so can be adopted by your competitors, and so why would you want to do that? Well, scientific research is not really free. Uh, now, the non-science PhDs in this room, uh, how many of you tr have tried to read an article in a professional physics journal? Okay, it's not the normal thing people curl up with, and you'll find that in order even to read that article, you need tremendous scientific background that almost anyone, uh, almost no one has. I mean, it's like saying science is free in the way that law is free. Like, you could go defend yourself in court. There are all the law books. You could just go study them and go ahead and defend yourself in court. You have three days. <laughs> go ahead. So, I mean, technically, that's true, but in practice, uh, it, it's, it's not. Private firms want to keep up with scientific breakthroughs so that they can exploit them on behalf of their own products and in, in, in the service of human welfare. But the only people who can monitor these advances for them who are knowledgeable enough to be able to understand what's being said at the conferences and read the, con the conference proceedings are scientists. But scientists don't enjoy spending all, all day in the library reading through scientific journals. They like being in a lab doing their own work. So basically the practical deal has been that the private sector wants scientists just to keep up with ongoing breakthroughs around the world. So it says, okay, you keep up with this research and then in return we'll give you your own lab where you can do your own stuff. And that's basically how it has worked in spite of all the models to the contrary. Charitable giving for the endowment of laboratories and scientific facilities was common in the age before estate tax uh, decimated fortunes. Uh, basic science has long been provided by the private sector. And the person to whom I'm most indebted on all the things I've just told you, Terence Keeley, writes in his book, The Economic Laws of Scientific Research, that in fact, private donors as a percentage of GDP we're more generous in funding basic science than the state has been. And he also shows in that book why government, when it provides uh, scientific funding, necessarily displaces more than it actually provides. Now, unfortunately, the Keeley book is out of print and very expensive. I try to summarize some of his arguments in, in rollback, but it's, it's very good that you can get it uh, at your libraries and it's very much worth reading. It's the opposite of anything you would expect. All right, now what about something like, let's get right down to the nitty gritty, like the most fundamental governmental role, defense, right? Keeping us safe. We can trust them here, right? <laughs> now, anytime you want to talk about the military budget, and, and again, if you're like me, this is how I used to be years ago. Years ago, if somebody said we have to take a look at the military budget, I would have said, what are you, some kind of commie? I mean, come on, military budget, I mean, these, come on, you can't, what, you, you want us to get overrun? by evil people, I mean, you can't possibly want to look at the military budget. But you know what, that's just the way they like it. That there's one sector, everybody's got one area that's off the table we can't even look at. But we can't afford to do this anymore. We can't afford this crazy assumption that, yeah, the government is full of liars and scoundrels who exploit us and loot us and lie to us all the time. But this one department is full of angels. <laughs> and moreover, they're so full of angels that we will expressly exempt them from audit. The Department of Defense is expressly exempted from being audited, but we don't, we don't need that, right? Because, I mean, they're all, these are all decent people. Well, there's a missing trillion bucks, for example, that I'd like to know uh, where it went. In the, since 9-11, since the Pentagon budget has gone up by about two, the increase has been about two trillion bucks. Now, half of that went to the war, so where'd the other half go? That's a good question, because when you actually look at the state of the of the U.S. military, you compare it before and after, well, the, uh, the combat air fleet has declined by more than 50% at a time when its budget went up by 43%. We've seen the number of Battle Force ships go down from about 333 to 287, and the Army, which got a 55% funding increase, went up by about 7%. That's what a trillion dollars got you. I've got military experts in here saying, this is the biggest fleecing of the public in the history of this country. But it goes totally to the So, you know, that's a question you might want to ask. If you happen to run into a former Secretary of Defense, just in your, in your travels, <laughs> Just to focus on just one of them. The problem is when, when your firm caters to the Pentagon, 
it becomes less attuned to you know, cost control. If when the major client is the Pentagon, cost control is not their major concern. And I'm not even saying that to be flippant or tongue in cheek, but from the Pentagon's point of view, they will find the money one way or another. For them, they're much more concerned about how well can you work with the military community? How well can you deal with the fact that we might be changing our requests of you, you know, every few weeks or something? How well can you adapt? How well do you speak our language? Cost, you know, it's a concern, but it's not number one. And so what begins to happen is that these firms begin to lose their competitive edge because they're not under that kind of market discipline anymore. And I show in here how this happened to the once robust U.S. machine tool industry, which is the envy of the world. Then the Pentagon became its major uh, client, and suddenly the machine tool industry becomes very uncompetitive, weirdly unable to keep up with cost cuts anywhere else in the world. In fact, in the 60s, the big thing was something called numerical control machine tool technology. Now, the Japanese developed it cheaply. Uh, the Germans developed it cheaply. The, the U.S. firms developed it, but at a price no private firm could possibly afford. Only the Pentagon could afford it. Well, this sort of thing we see seeping through anyone who touches the department. In fact, when we look at some of these major firms like uh, Grumman and Boeing and some of them that, that then went into trying to provide mass transit systems. Well, you just have to read about that. But, but uh, like, like Grumman provided buses for New York City that were so bad and broke down so much that uh, the city ended up suing the company. And this is, this is like a, it's an epidemic, but, but it's just, it's generally not, not talked about. And then we could, uh, again, there's just so many things I could tell you about here. I mean, really, it's, it's, it's an embarrassment of riches, but I want to start, start closing because what we're dealing with here is more than about just spending or balanced budgets or debt. We're dealing really here with right and wrong. And I want to close with, and don't get your hopes up, I am probably going to go right up to the end, but I say I'm going to close, but this is a long close. We're building up to something. I want to close with a little, uh, little story from, uh, and don't give away the punchline, people, some of you who know this, uh, all you dorky philosophers out there. Uh, Robert Nozick was a Harvard philosopher. Who don't, don't flee when you hear Harvard philosopher. Get me the heck out of here. Uh, Robert Nozick wrote this book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, in 1974. And I want to go through good. Got some then you got people like me. Nozick didn't go far enough. Okay. All right, I gotta get to it. Alright, basically it's this. I want to share with you his tale of the slave. And it goes through nine stages, but they're all brief. He says, the first stage is, you are a slave at the mercy of a brutal master who forces you to work for his purposes and beats you arbitrarily. Second stage, the master decides to beat you only for breaking the rules and even grants you some free time. Third, you are part of a group of slaves subject to this master. He decides, on grounds acceptable to everyone, how goods should be allocated among you all. Fourth, the master requires his slaves to work only three days per week, granting them the other four days off. They can do as they wish during their free time. Fifth, the master now allows the slaves to work wherever they wish. His main caveat is that they must send him three-sevenths of their wages, corresponding to the three days' worth of work they once had to do on his land every week. In an emergency, he can force them to do his bidding once again, and he retains the power to alter the fraction of their wages to which he lays claim. Sixth, the master grants all 10,000 of his slaves, except you, the right to vote. They can decide among themselves how much of their and your earnings to take and what outlets to fund with the money. They can decide what you are and are not allowed to do. We can suppose for the sake of argument that the master irrevocably grants this right to the 10,000 slaves. You now have 10,000 masters or a single 10,000-headed master. Seventh, you are granted the freedom to try to persuade the 10,000 to exercise their vast powers in a particular way. You still do not have the right to vote, but you can try to influence those who do. Eighth, the 10,000 grant you the right to vote, but only to break a tie. You write down your vote, and if a tie should occur, they open it and record it. No tie has ever occurred. Ninth, you are granted the right to vote, but functionally it simply means, as in the eighth stage, that in the case of a tie, which has never occurred, your vote carries the issue. Nozick's question is this, at what stage between one and nine did this become something other than the tale of a slave? 
Now that's the kind of question we rarely consider because it's an unexamined premise of our society that society can't function unless we have one single institution telling 309 million people what to do, how much of their labor they're entitled to the fruits of, and so on and on. And yes, it throws the poor a few scraps, but in a thousand and one open and covert ways, this institution enriches various elites at the expense of the rest of the population. The more it grows, the worse it gets. More and more sectors of society conclude that they too must enrich themselves by means of government-granted privilege. Everyone begins to clamor for subsidies just in order to break even. The industrialists take, the farmers take, the scientists take, the military establishment takes, the social workers take, the education bureaucracy takes, everybody takes. All of this looting under cover of law is what Frederick Bastiat, the great 19th century French economic thinker, memorably called legal plunder. Because nobody considers it legitimate to stick a gun in his neighbor's ribs and take his stuff. But we're taught to believe that a dramatic moral difference separates that kind of direct stealing from the indirect kind, that is to say, when the government sticks a gun in your neighbor's ribs and hands the proceeds to you. Nozick put it like this, when you tax away from someone the fruits of five months of his labor, you are taking from him five months of his life. Dance around that issue all you want, use Orwellian synonyms all you like, but this is forced labor by any reasonable definition of the term. Can this really be the most humane way for human beings to interact with each other? Is it so unthinkable to imagine a society in which we put the guns down and we interact with each other on the basis of reason and compassion? But in particular, it is long past time with this catastrophe staring us in the face that we set a match to that sixth grade textbook. We understood the nature of the state. We really see what this institution is. Let us see it for what it is. Because the propaganda with which we are flooded regarding how indispensable the political class is, oh, they're all just selfless public servants, is unworthy of a sixth grade. We would not die instantly in the absence of the Joe Bidens and the Mitch McConnells. We would flourish. And here's the proof. All right, folks, that's going to do it. Tomorrow, again, if you're listening to these as they come out, tomorrow's 9-11, and I'm in New York for 9-11, so I'll be talking a little bit about that topic. What else would I talk about on 9-11? I guess, as I look back, I'm not sure I have talked about 9-11 on 9-11, but I think on this 9-11, I'm going to talk about 9-11. So that's what you can expect when you tune in tomorrow. Make sure and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. You can do that easily at tomwoods.com slash iTunes. See you later. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.